Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. Topping today's show, Diane Feinstein's replacement has been selected. We'll talk about who she is. I'm Jade Hindman with conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. Who is LaFonza Butler and what issues will she have to tackle as Diane Feinstein's Senate replacement? So really, she has, you know, probably a strong relationship and track record of working with Governor Gavin Newsom, as well as being an independent leader on her own who has headed Emily's List, you know, this national prominent organization. So a really strong political biography. Plus, we'll explain what Care Court is and how to access the service. And KPBS's film critic, Beth Accomando, takes us to this year's Filipino Film Festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. California Governor Gavin Newsom has selected Democratic Party strategist LaFonza Butler to be California's next senator. The announcement comes after last week's passing of long-serving Senator Dianne Feinstein at the age of 90. With the pick, Newsom fulfills a promise he made to select a black woman for the seat. When she takes office, Butler will also become California's first openly LGBTQ plus senator. Here to tell us more about the state's next senator is Casey Dominguez, professor of political science at the University of San Diego. Casey, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Thad Kowser, professor at UC San Diego and co-director of the Yankelovich Center for Social Science Research. Thad, welcome to you. Hi, thanks for having me too. Glad to have you both here. So Casey, I'll start with you. LaFonza Butler will be California's next senator. Tell us about her. Uh, well, uh, you know, she... What she's not a native-born Californian, um, but she has she's been a leader in the labor movement. Um, she was a leader of the SEIU, 
which is a the Service Employees International Union, is an important important powerhouse in democratic politics. Currently, she is the leader of another really important group in Democratic Party politics, Emily's List, which uh, raises money and helps to elect Democratic pro-choice women. Um, She's also served a number of other roles. She was a California regent, and uh, now she's a U.S. senator. All right, Thad, you know, Butler's never held political office, but as Casey just mentioned, she's had a long career in Democratic Party circles. Um, Tell me about that. Yeah, I think the the only thing really that's missing on her resume is serving in office and being in the public eye. And and that's all about to change for LaFonza Butler. But she's been, as as Casey said, right, as as a leader at SEIU, which is really at the center of, of the Democratic Party and of the policy direction, the progressive policy direction that California has moved in in the last decade. She's been someone who has tremendous policy experience. She also has political experience. She was a part of the political firm that has all of Gavin Newsom's consultants. So really she has, you know, probably a strong relationship and track record of working with Governor Gavin Newsom and as well as being an independent leader on her own who has headed Emily's List, you know, this nationally prominent organization. So a really strong political biography. Yeah. And and Thad, the governor wasted no time uh, making this decision. Were you surprised by how quickly uh, Newsom made his decision on who would replace Feinstein? Well, there are a few other things going on in American politics now, <laughs> uh, including the potential of a government shutdown. Uh, you know, we also have uh, New Jersey Senator Robert Menendez, who has many in his own party are calling for him to resign. So Every vote counts in the Senate. And and also the longer this went on, I think for Gavin Newsom, if he had played Hamlet with this and gone back and forth, it really could have made what, what has been a fairly complex decision-making process uh, even harder. So I think he just wanted, he, he knew uh, soon Senator Butler well, wanted to make this decision, wanted to stop the, 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 the chatter in class from talking more and just move forward. Right. And Casey Newsom uh, previously said he didn't want to appoint someone running for Feinstein's Senate seat, uh, preferring an interim replacement instead. Does that mean that Butler won't be able to run for the seat in 2024? That's actually a great question. Dad might know the answer better than I do. I mean, I think there would probably still be time to get on the primary ballot if she decided to. I think the reason that he reached for someone who wasn't sitting in elective office and wasn't already running was precisely to avoid putting his thumb on the scale in the ongoing Senate race, which has been going on for for many months now and has, you know, several prominent declared candidates and the party establishment is dividing itself up and its support between these candidates. Um, So I I guess I would be a little bit surprised if that's what ended up happening, but I think she would still be able to. Dad, do you know? Yeah, she she would have the time to, and especially she already has the tacit blessing of Gavin Newsom. So his uh, communications director, Anthony York, reached out and made a statement bef- a couple hours before she was appointed saying, whoever comes in, whoever our appointee is, would be absolutely free to run. This is not a caretaker. He was, I think, rightfully criticized by Barbara Lee, among others, for saying that he'll make this historic appointment that'll be groundbreaking, but then this person would be a caretaker. And I think most people looked at that and said, you know what, look, if if someone, if Gavin Newsom thinks someone's good enough to be senator, why couldn't the voters have their take on that in 2024? So he's now explicitly said that this is not a caretaking appointment. And LaFonza Butler, if she chooses to, I think would bring a lot of, you know, she's got connections in the policy world. 
a big fundraising list, uh, connections through Emily's list. And, and I think she could be a formidable candidate if she chooses to be in what would be then a four-way contest for Senate in California. Yeah. And those running for the seat in 2024 uh, at this point, they're well-known politicians. So Casey, can you tell me who are the leading candidates there and how does the selection of Butler change that race? Well, uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, Congresswoman Katie Porter and Congresswoman Barbara Lee are the three leading candidates. And, you know, the the Democratic Party, all of them have been reaching out to different constituencies inside the Democratic Party and the uh, you know, Katie Porter is a was a student of Elizabeth Warren and and you know is working on that progressive wing of the party. Um, Adam Schiff has the support of Nancy Pelosi, and you know there's there's certainly room in the race for additional candidates. Um, although a lot of the party has has divided up its support already. You know, Thad, a lot has been made of the power of organized labor in California politics this year. Several bills which came out of this year's state legislature were bills supported by labor groups. And as Casey mentioned earlier, Butler once led the state's largest union, SEIU, Local 2015. Is this another sign that organized labor is gaining strength in California? The gaining strength, it's already there, right? Organized labor is at the center of the Democratic Party, uh, both in its politics. So many of these leaders, right? Longtime Speaker Anthony Rendon came through through labor. Tony Atkins has very close ties with labor organizations. So both in people's political career paths, but also really in in the policy uh, muscle that that, that labor flexes. Uh, you know, there were a lot of very strongly worker friendly bills that came out of the legislature this year. Gavin Newsom, who you know, who's who may be about to veto a high labor uh, a bill that's a high priority for labor that would give striking workers access to unemployment insurance. You know, he was. This may be part of his the dance that he's played uh, and has to as governor between satisfying labor and and doing some business friendly deals. But I think it just exemplifies that you just the Democratic Party and and labor are so tightly intertwined that elevating any any Democratic insider is is going to be in some ways also elevating someone who has labor as one part of her multifaceted career resume. Mm. And I, I want to talk about what some of Butler's big issues will be. Uh, so Casey, I mean, in a statement released today, Butler gave a nod to Feinstein saying, I am humbled by the governor's trust. Senator Dianne Feinstein's leadership and legacy are immeasurable. I'll do my best to honor her by devoting my time and energy to serving the people of California and the people of this great nation. So what are some of the big issues she'll likely be uh, handling uh, once she takes office? Well, for that, I think we really have to think about what's going on in Washington right now. You know, certainly there are ways in which representatives and senators can serve their constituents behind the scenes and can advocate for constituents and and for the people of California and California businesses with the executive branch. But in terms of voting on legislation, that agenda is pretty stifled (laughs) by the difference between the House Republicans and the Senate Democratic, narrow Democratic Senate majority. And, uh, you know, they'll be working on funding the government. And then as we get into the presidential election year, they'll, they'll have to fund it again next year. And uh, as a senator, she'll be voting on judicial nominations and probably voting along with the rest of the Democratic Party on, on all of those things. Um, so to the degree that, that she'd be 
doing anything significant, it would probably be more behind the scenes. Otherwise, she'll be a, you know, a voice in committee hearings and she'll be a, you know, a Democratic vote for Democratic priorities. Hmm. And I'm, I'm curious from both of you all, I mean, you know, what about this debate over whether older politicians should hold on to power with all of their valuable institutional knowledge, or pass it down earlier to the next generation and groom them for political leadership? You know, I think letting voters decide is is the right way. And, you know, right now we have sort of multiple political generations running as options for voters, right? In Barbara Lee, you have someone who created the Progressive Caucus, was the co-founder of that, was progressive before it was cool. Uh, you know, Adam Schiff and 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 Katie Porter, right, are of, of, of a younger generation, sort of the people who, who came into politics post post Bill Clinton or even post Barack Obama. Uh, and, and then you have a new voice uh, with Alfonso Butler, someone who, you know, just looking through through her Twitter feed, right? It's all about women's rights and voting rights, right? These sort of perennial issues of the Democratic Party, but with with her take on it and with a lot of younger faces on that. So, you know, if, if she decides to run, voters will get to choose how old they want, how experienced they trade off between experience and fresh voices that they'd like to see in politics. Casey, what's your thought on that? I mean, uh, I know when I talk about this with my undergraduate students, um, you know, they they often bring up the how much they would love to see some younger people holding office, um, and so I, I'm pretty accustomed to making the argument that the longer people serve in office, the more they remember about how things have gone in the past and promises that have been made and broken in the past, and uh, how the executive branch works. If you're, you know, looking to to check the executive branch as a legislator. Um, and all of that is really valuable institutional memory. And the only thing to watch out for is that as people age, you know, they they do encounter more health challenges. Um, and senators like Feinstein have large staffs, um, and they they have the ability to to do a lot of work by delegation to their staffs. Uh, but but at some point, you know, you really do want people who are engaged in the business of governing and of legislating. And it's every individual is different. Uh, so I, I think that's got probably the right answer. And that is it's up to the voters. But I think the voters do need honest and accurate information about the the health of people who are who are in office and, and you know, the degree to which they're engaged with their work. And uh, Feinstein held a seat on the Senate Judicial Committee. What happens to that? So my understanding is that the Republicans will follow the customary procedure when there is a death in office, and they will allow, you know, not not try to filibuster the Democrats, um, you know, replacing her seat on the Judiciary Committee. But California's other senator is already sitting on the Judiciary Committee, so it, there's probably going to be some jockeying for position, and and some other Democratic senator will probably take Senator Feinstein's seat on the Judiciary Committee, and Senator Butler when she gets uh, sworn into office will probably be assigned to some other committees. That's my understanding. Well, also, before we go, I want to touch on the shutdown. I mean, this weekend, we narrowly avoided a government shutdown. There's a stopgap measure uh, in place now. You know, what are, are the prospects for the long term deal? And also, how would San Diego be affected should a shutdown happen? Well, obviously, a shutdown, if it affects the military, which is a rare thing, but that's what we would have seen, right, is a shutdown with the possibility that active duty military and their family would have suffered. Uh, that, avoiding that is a big deal for, for San Diego, for all the government services that people in San Diego rely on, but but especially for the, for the military. 
what we're going to see 45 days from now when we're next having this political cliff uh, that both parties might walk off of really depends on who the Speaker of the House will be, right? So Kevin McCarthy has has worked uh, and crossed the aisle uh, and, and worked really with, with moderates and the heart of the Republican Party, but also with some Democrats to come up with both a debt ceiling deal at the beginning of the summer and a government shutdown avoidance deal that finds middle ground, but doesn't massively cut government. About 15, 20 members of his party don't like that. And they may be preparing uh, a leadership fight over his position this week. And if that happens, it will absolutely change the calculus for, for both parties and the impact and the potential for a shutdown as we head towards Christmas. Yeah, lots happening. Casey, anything uh, to follow up on that? I mean, I think there's individuals who get to make really important choices here. Um, you know, the, the House is so divided that the the, the few members who you know might go back and forth between supporting sort of the rogue right wing element or the mainstream of the Republican Party, we don't know what their choices are going to be. So we don't know where we're going to be in a couple of months. So much at stake. All right. I've been speaking with Casey Dominguez, professor of political science at the University of San Diego and Thad Kowser, professor at UC San Diego and co-director of the Yankelovich Center for Social Science Research. Thank you both for joining us today and giving us your insight on all that's happening. Thanks, Jed. Thank you. Coming up, a conversation about the rollout of Care Court in San Diego County that it is meant to complement other really important avenues into care within the, the behavioral health domain. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. San Diegan struggling with extreme mental illness and substance abuse now have a new option to get treatment. It's called Care Court, and it just got started yesterday. It is part of a new statewide effort to bring court-managed treatment to people in need in hopes of providing an alternative to jails or being unsheltered on the streets. Here to talk more about Care Court is Luke Bergman, Director of San Diego County's Behavioral Health Services Department. Luke, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you so much, Jen. Good to be with you. Glad to have you here. First off, can you remind us what Care Court is and what the intention for it is? Absolutely. So what we call the CARE Act program, because it was inaugurated with an act of the state legislature, is the establishment of a court, a new court that will sit within the San Diego Superior Court, and that will be a site designed to receive petitions from various community members, various categories of institution and expert and crisis respondent, petitions to create orders for care plans. So care court sits in the civil court, not in criminal court of San Diego Superior Court. And again, is meant to be a site that people from the community can petition to establish orders for care plans. Now, it's important that we understand that the eligibility criteria for the CARE Act program are very specific and somewhat narrow. And, and it's especially important, I think, that we highlight that because there's been over the course of the, you know, the planning of the CARE Act program over the
over the course of, of its travels through um, the state legislature, there's been a great deal of uh, rhetoric in the public discourse about what the CARAC program um, will be and what it will do. And it's it's left people with the sense generally um, that it's going to do an enormous amount, that it is going to maybe even fundamentally transform uh, behavioral health care in California counties. And I want to be very clear that that is not what it's designed to do. It is designed to, to do a very specific thing instead, which is create court orders for care plans for people with schizophrenia spectrum disorders specifically, in addition to a few other psychotic disorders. So when we think about the broad swath of behavioral health diagnoses, the most common are anxiety disorders. After that would be mood disorders like depression. The category of diagnoses that we see least frequently across our communities, constituting around maybe a little less than 1% of the total population, are the categories of diagnoses that are eligible for the CARE Act program. And those are schizophrenia spectrum disorders. You know, with such narrow requirements for care court, are you concerned that it may not meet the needs of enough people? The CARE program will become one of many programs and services that we have in the County of San Diego meant to address the needs of people with behavioral health conditions. So it's, I think, very likely that it will succeed at doing what it is designed to do, which is to, to enhance or accelerate efforts to engage with people with uh, these very specific set of diagnoses and help those people better engage over longer periods of time in care that will lead to better outcomes for them. I do anticipate that this program will succeed uh, on that front, and that's really what it's designed to do. So we, you know, we have high hopes that this will be a, a great success here. It's just important, I think, given the fact that there are some misaligned expectations for what it should do uh, in some quarters that we that we are clear that it is meant to complement other really important avenues into care within the, the behavioral health domain, such as Laura's Law, such as conservatorship, such as, you know, the broad array of um, of care management uh, and and clinically cited services um, that we offer. Mm. And let's clear the confusion about that. Um, you know, is Care Court voluntary? Care Court is absolutely voluntary. And it's one of the um, one of the sort of misunderstandings of it that has that has prevailed over many months. Um, and in fact, concern about that engendered a great deal of um, activity and activism among disability rights activists, in particular, who were concerned that the Care Act program would establish an additional pathway to conservatorship. And conservatorship, of course, is a, you know, it's a it's a very serious programmatic intervention that pretty categorically curtails a person's civil liberties, right? It's a it's a program that puts a person into a kind of care arrangement where their medical decisions are made for them. And so the thought that there would be the establishment of an additional avenue into that kind of very restrictive, most restrictive care arrangement was very concerning for for people. And in fact, in earlier drafts of the statutory language, that suggestion seemed it seemed reasonable to suppose that that might happen. Those concerns were largely addressed over the course of the evolution of the statute. And at this point, I can say with total clarity um, that there is no direct pathway 
from the CARE Act program into conservatorship. The conservatorship petitioning process, conservatorship hearings are entirely distinct um, and driven by a, a different separate statute from the one that has created and that will drive operations around the CARE Act program. Mm. On that that issue of people sort of misunderstanding whether or not this program is voluntary or not, um, KPBS spoke to one mental health advocate, Anita Fisher, last year after uh, the CARE Court legislation was passed. Here's a little of what Ms. Fisher had to say about her son, Pharaoh, who has schizophrenia. And I know there was definitely opposition to it because of rights, but my son has no rights in jail or prison either. And so I would rather that he be uh, temporarily, you know, involuntarily treated in some some manner um, in order so that he can then again be able to lead his own life the way that he wants. But during these times, he cannot. So what do you say to families who believe that involuntary treatment is actually needed to treat their loved ones? And I'll just note that I know Ms. Fisher and am deeply appreciative um, of her work and advocacy in this space. Uh, her story is very, very compelling. And she's really doing heroic work uh, on behalf of people with serious mental illness who have experienced difficulty staying engaged in care. And and I would actually say that there's, you know, the the needs that she describes um, are are absolutely real. And they are needs that are addressable through mechanisms that we that we have at our disposal in the state of California and so in, in San Diego County in particular that include conservatorship and that include uh, assisted outpatient treatment or what we refer to as Laura's Law. The CARE Act program is meant to complement those. It is meant to be a less restrictive option than either of those. And in, in fact, as we implement the CARE Act program in, in this county, and you know, I'm able to do this um, kind of with particular efficiency because I am also the public conservator in the county of San Diego, we are establishing as kind of compulsory process that any referral for conservatorship for that most restrictive care arrangement be considered for CARE Act for the CARE Act program before the establishment of a temporary and then, and then permanent uh, conservatorship potentially uh, thereafter. So we know that that outcomes are often best and, um, and, and, and sort of potential collateral side effects such as, um, such as trauma from mandated care are best when the least restrictive option is sought. There are, there are of course, many cases where, you know, voluntary care doesn't work. Um, and in those cases, we need a different tool. And the CARE Act was passed and the CARE Act program has been developed in a context where we know there is this other tool, which is, or these other tools, in fact, which include conservatorship and then and then Laura's Law as well. So as CARE Court officially opens, for families looking for help for a loved one, how can they petition someone for CARE Court? So the Superior Court of San Diego um, holds the petitioning process. So there, it begins with the filling out of some paperwork. It's not terribly extensive, and it's available through the Superior Court's website, um, also available through links at the, at the County of San Diego Behavioral Health Services Department website. And uh, if people who are interested in uh, the CARE Act program on, on behalf of, of someone they love or a family member. If they're interested in learning more, they can also call 988 or 
the county's access and crisis line, which is 888-724-7240, and get connected to care court resources that way as well. And what they will then do is complete the petitioning paperwork, which is a you know a couple few pages long, and and asks among other things for as much confirmation as can be given regarding the diagnosis of the person on whose behalf a petition is is being filed, in addition to some other con- important contextual information, such as confirmation that the person on whose behalf a petition is being filed isn't engaged in care currently, and, and that sort of thing. That paperwork would then be submitted through an online portal to the Superior Court, which would then, in rapid order, take it under consideration, review that petition, and make a determination um, whether or not that petition meets what's called a prima facie uh, threshold, or does it meet basic eligibility for care court requirements. If the court determines that it does, then it will reach out to to the Behavioral Health Services Department, the department that I run, um, and we will notice the person who's had the petition filed on their behalf, and then we will commence an approximately two-week period of investigation and information gathering about the case, ultimately towards the end of compiling a report where we were where we will um, opine about you know what we think the appropriate next step would be with respect to establishing a care court case or not establishing a care court case. But very importantly, during that two week period, we will be doing everything that we can to engage the the respondent and to connect them to care, in a way that would preempt the need for a care court case. And that's really like the, um, that's kind of the optimal outcome. And you you named off a lot of resources. Of course, we're going to post those on our website at kpbs.org. Can you walk us through what someone will experience once in care court? What does that look like in practice? After we have gathered information, and in cases where the court determines that they want to pursue establishment of a case, the court will order, and this is really its you know, kind of formal prerogative, it will order the development of a care plan. And what's really critical about care planning in behavioral health is that we know it works best when the primary author of the care plan is the patient or client themselves. And care planning under an order of the court in the context of the Care Act program is no different. So though it entails a court order, which sounds impositional, uh, certainly in, in language, what it will lead to is a care planning process that is meant to be very collaborative and meant to be primarily informed by the preferences and interests of the respondent themselves. That care plan process will result in a, in the development of a care plan, a, a, do, a document which will be approved by the court. And then um, behavioral health services will be working with the respondent over the next year, at least, uh, to ensure that every effort is made to follow that care plan, to keep the respondent consistently engaged in care. And then there will be, over the course of that next year, a a cadence of hearings in the court in front of uh, the judge overseeing the CARE Act program, where updates will be given regarding progress in care. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with Luke Bergman, Director of San Diego's Behavioral Health Services, about CARE Court, which is now available for people who need it.
And Luke, CareCourt is being touted as a tool to reduce homelessness. And we know the high cost of housing in San Diego is a major cause of homelessness. How is housing addressed in the services CareCourt provides? I think it's important, first of all, to note that while some respondents to petitions in the CARIC program will be people experiencing homelessness, it's not a program designed primarily to address the needs of people experiencing homelessness. We we imagine, um, given prevalence of, of behavioral health conditions among people experiencing homelessness, that um, housing will be an important part of many care plans. It may not be a part of all care plans. And Jade, you're exactly right. Housing people with Serious mental illness is a serious challenge in the current moment because of the housing crisis that we face generally here. And what has been a really profound diminution in housing resources for people with serious mental illness in particular over the last five to 10 years. To, to try to address that in the nearest term, we've actually in the county gotten a grant from the state, upwards of $44 million, that will be devoted primarily to creating capacity in our board and care system. So that is, these are, are community-based, least restrictive settings for long-term care, along with uh, uh, assistance and support for people with, with serious mental, mental illness. And, and uh, again, it's a, this is a, a component of our behavioral health continuum um, that that there is a, a profound shortage of right now. Um, so so this is a very important resource. What we'll be doing with it is um, helping people with the least resources, people who are very likely on on public insurance, people who very likely would only have their SSI um, income to spend on board and care support. We're helping those people compete in what is a uh, um, a marketplace for board and care slots um, that's really characterized by by terrible scarcity uh, at the moment. So that's going to help us in the nearest term. Over the long haul, we are going to need to continue being determined and devoted and, and focused on building additional infrastructure and establishing additional and in particular long-term community-based settings for ongoing care. And earlier, you talked about ways care court is distinct from conservatorship. What is the state of conservatorship in the San Diego region today? Numbers that we're seeing from our administrative data suggest that, you know, the conservatorship program has been operating um, with with consistency um, over the last number of years. The numbers of conservatorships, of permanent conservatorships established has remained relatively consistent over the last few years. The number of temporary conservatorships, that is conservatorships that the public conservator's office refers to the courts has reduced to some extent. And so what we're seeing right now is uh, a greater and greater alignment of what the public conservator's office recommends in terms of conservatorship and what the court is actually establishing, which I think is a, a good thing. Um, it's worth noting that there is really significant uh, uh, state legislation on the horizon uh, with Senate Bill 43 um, that will create some changes to current what we call LPS or mental health hold law to make it more broadly applicable. You know, as this law gets implemented, as some changes in practice in response to it get implemented, we will need to work out how to balance you know, the new parameters of mental health hold opportunity with what the CARE Act program does. Luke Bergman is director for the County of San Diego's Behavioral Health Services. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jade. Thank you. 
Coming up, a preview of this year's Filipino Film Festival. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to amplify that representation and that when we do that, it also amplifies and inspires even our own community in terms of heritage and pride. And so that's something that's really, yeah, that's really important for, for our work. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. October marks Filipino American Heritage Month, and in order to raise awareness for Filipino cinema as an important art form and a powerful tool for representation, San Diego Filipino Cinema is holding its third annual San Diego Filipino Film Festival. The festival kicks off tomorrow night, but its opening and closing night films are already sold out. KPBS film critic Beth Acamando spoke with Benito Batista, executive director and co-founder of San Diego Filipino Cinema. Benito, you are on the eve of the third annual San Diego Filipino Film Festival. The festival has grown an amazing amount. I already have seen you've got sellout performances. Yes, it's exciting. It's, uh, it makes us really proud. It's, it also inspires us and it drives us to do our work, our important work in, in amplifying our representation in arts and culture and cinema. Exciting, very exciting. And for people who may not realize this, San Diego really does have an exceptionally large Filipino community. Yes, we're, we're the largest Asian ethnicity in San Diego. And you are opening the festival this year with a documentary, Nurse Unseen. According to National Nurses United, Filipino nurses only make up 4% of the nursing population, but account for nearly a third of coronavirus deaths. Why is this happening to Filipino nurses? Filipino nurses have been in the United States for decades. You cannot take Filipino nurses for granted anymore. We have to continue telling our story. We have to be seen. Nurse and Scene is directed by Michelle Josue, an Emmy-awarded uh, filmmaker from L.A. She's coming, by the way. This is, this is a story of the, you know, the invisibility of uh, the Filipino nurses in our in our American society, and the only time I think we started hearing about their contributions is during COVID, and then at the same time they're also victims of uh, 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 Asian hate. Put that together, and you have you have a very complex uh, story. Through the festival and through San Diego Filipino Cinema, you really celebrate a lot of heritage through cinema. Yes. I think the intention really is so that we can be included on the table, you know, at the table for discussions so that we can share our experiences, our struggles, our history, our dreams, our future, and so that we can we can learn from each other. And we've been invisible for we've been in, in, in different industries, you know, including the film industry, but we've never been highly visible. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to amplify that representation and that when we do that, it also amplifies and inspires even our own community in terms of heritage and pride. And so that's something that's really, 
Yeah, that's really important for, for our work. And you have a centerpiece film called Searching for Capua, and this also looks to a lot of Filipino heritage and really puts things into a large context. Capua is a sense of connection to other people, particularly other people of Filipino descent. So it's a sense that we are all connected, we are all family, and it feels like a really spiritual sense of connection, that we are cut from the same cloth. And regardless of where we are and whether or not we even really know each other, there's a sense of family and connection and community. Why had I always felt the exact opposite, feeling so disconnected from my culture? How did this happen? With Terry by my side, I began a search to understand. We have first-generation Filipino immigrants and second-generation, third-generation. We have the Gen Z. It, it's actually, it's a shared experience with all immigrants, and we're all immigrants here. So this is sort of trying to figure out where we're at and answering the questions of disconnection, generational gap, cultural disconnect, the American experience. You really kind of want to know how it is as a transplant from a different country, how it was before and how it is now if you're born here, coming from that generation. It's, it's beautiful because we, we see ourselves in, in the stories, you know, in, 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 the, in the dialogue, in the discussion. So, yeah. Another thing I really like about your festival is that you not only look to new films, but you also like to look to the past and to celebrate veterans in the industry. And this year you have a tribute to actress Gloria Sevilla. Tell us about the film you're showing. The Pagbalik is a feature uh, narrative film. It's about the return of a daughter who's lived in America and the mother who stayed in the Philippines. Why? 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 And so now we're going to see sort of the their experience being together? Is there going to be harmony? Is it going to be problematic? You visit your your parents you've never seen in a long time. And because if you're if you're actually an immigrant in in, in, in America and you've left your, your family in the Philippines, most likely you're not you won't be able to return after two or three years. Usually you'll probably end up returning after about 13 years, and so on and so forth. And so imagine sort of the lost connection, you know, and that is basically what the film is about. It's, it, it will resonate to, to all immigrants, you know? Yeah, and it's, it's beautifully shot uh, in black and white. It's like Italian cinema. Well, and as programmers, you guys are being pretty ambitious as well. You're showing over 100 films, both in person and online. Yes, yes. We have a lot of things we're doing. And the team, you know, the the members of the programming team, uh, headed by uh, Emma Francisco, they're doing other projects. And so sometimes they can only watch two films or three films a day. And then... We, we tally our score. Individually, we watch the films. We analyze the film. We prepare our arguments. And then we sit down as programming team and we discuss and, and fight about the... <laughs> and really fight for the arguments that we have for the film. That's, that's... Yeah, you're right. It's a little ambitious. It's a little ambitious, but 
we're excited because uh, in the beginning, when we opened the doors, and I think that was the first time during the first year, right? You were with us. We were nervous because we just opened the door to the first San Diego Filipino Film Festival, not knowing who's going to be here. Are we going to even have films submitted? And now we have we have films, and up to now there's still people trying to submit films, but we reached the deadline. It's you know we couldn't do it, so we're really happy and also thankful for our uh, sponsors, our volunteers, our programmers, and our team of volunteers and our our community, you know, and 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 really engaging with what we have. And this is just the beginning. We want to expand with other programs within the festival. This year we have, like last year, we have Visions and Voices panel discussion as well. Well, and you and Emma are both filmmakers as well as festival organizers. So you are really dedicated to trying to like create this next generation of filmmakers. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think Emma and I, and we're still practicing filmmakers. Emma is, is, is a film producer. I'm a writer, director, producer. We work in in our films together we work in other people's films together and we have uh, projects on the board and different stages of development but early on we've learned as filmmakers especially filmmakers of filipino descent we've learned every time we go to a film festival and present our own films we're part of maybe three films and that we have filmmakers around the world and we wanted to learn from their stories. And so we wanted to include them in the discussion. We want to share their stories to our community and also the diverse community and, and continue to learn from them. And so that's why Emma and I, we work with so much intention, with so much passion and inspiration because we know that we are going to see filmmakers like us on stage presenting their films. And it, it will bounce back and we will continue to learn. And now we have a growing number of uh, San Diego filmmakers that are, are Filipino-Americans. And really, really exciting. I mean, you know, and then they're beginning to, because of the, the our f first film festival and last year's uh, film festival, they're beginning to network and create their own creative collaboration. Oh, it's so exciting. Really, it's exciting. And so, yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I appreciate about the festival, too, is you have a diversity of films. So you have narrative films, short films, feature films, documentaries, rom-coms. Mom, mom, you seen that? And I wanted to ask you about A Silent Night. I really enjoyed this film and it was kind of unexpected. It takes some turns. It's a mix of genres on a certain level. You get a little bit of psychological thriller and a little bit of horror and also some social commentary. Yes. Well, okay, so the writer-director is first and foremost an accomplished uh, screenwriter in Philippine uh, cinema. And he's our friend, Shugo Praiko, and we work with him in our other films in the Philippines. And when he came out with this film, we got excited and yeah, we, we watched the film and yeah, and, and you're right. It is a psychological thriller, but with a messaging, you know, uh, uh, political corruption 
in in yeah in the in, in local government, you know, and and also in in the in the police in the Philippines. So, and it I think it's a mirror. It's also a mirror of where where we're at in our society and in any government in 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 in, in the world. So yeah. That was Bet Dacamando speaking with Benito Batista, executive director and co-founder of San Diego Filipino Cinema. The third annual San Diego Filipino Film Festival runs Tuesday through Sunday at the Lot Library Station at AMC Plaza Bonita. Thanks for listening to Midday Edition. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. We'll be back tomorrow at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. I'm Jade Hindman. We'll chat again tomorrow. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.